There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Manisha Krishnan, senior editor at Vice. Hello. Hi, Jesse. We're still here. <laughs> Today on the show, uh, ODing on bullshit. Meet the new opioid crisis. And Canada's new passport. Everybody just fucking loves it. Welcome back to Shortcuts, Manisha, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to everybody by Nicola Fairhead, Nathan Dweck, Brett McDonald, Krista Nicholson, Kelsey Tobin, Andre Carole, Azsha Wright, and Grant. Hi, my name is Grant, and I'm an ESL teacher in La Chute, Quebec. I listen to Canada Land because they teach me things about our country that I wouldn't hear anywhere else. Whether it's Matea teaching us about how the government works, or Archie teaching us about how the government really works. I'm all for it. J'apprécie aussi beaucoup des tours. Continue de critiquer les médias, Emily. C'est parfait. Manisha, as a reporter who's been on the drug beat for years, I know that you are very familiar with the fentanyl crisis, with toxic, tainted supply, an epidemic of overdoses, more than 30,000 deaths in Canada so far. But, you know, you, you moved away from Canada a little while back, so you might not be familiar with the new opioid crisis, safe supply. Well, the price- 
Prime Minister is doing is massively e- increasing the drug overdose crisis in this country. He has been providing taxpayer dollars for high-powered drugs that have flooded our streets and lowered the cost of hydromorphine on the streets by as much as 95% in Vancouver, leading to the deaths of 30,000 Canadians. There's Conservative leader Pierre Polyev uh, grilling Trudeau during question period. And this is uh, in addition to comments he made on Twitter, where he lays at Trudeau's feet all of these overdose deaths and says that Justin Trudeau said that spending tax dollars to give free hard drugs to addicts was quote-unquote safe. Now we know that addicts are reselling Trudeau's drugs and using the proceeds to buy deadly fentanyl. How do we know that? How do we now know that? Well, he links to a National Post article. And that's what's driving this narrative, and it's, it's a narrative that we're hearing in chorus from conservatives. MP Rachel Thomas tweeting, we've seen a 300% increase in drug overdoses since the liberals started providing safe supply drugs. Why is this devastation allowed to continue? It's time to bring our loved ones home and make sure they receive the proper treatment they need. We're seeing that language again and again. We need to fund treatment and recovery to bring home our people drug-free. Conservative MP Melissa Lansman also talking about how safe supply is not working. And they all are linking to or referring to this National Post article. Did you catch this article, Manisha? I did. It was a slog to get through. (laughs) It was like 10,000 words. There was a lot of claims in it, but not a lot backing them up. I mean, it was mostly quoting anonymous doctors. I don't think there was anyone who was actually in a safe supply program quoted even once as far as my sort of read of it. I don't know if you caught something different, but it mostly seemed to rely on unnamed doctors. I want to talk with you about the piece in detail and the sourcing, like unnamed doctors. It's kind of a curious thing to build a story on. I think it's really important for us to dig into the story because, like, it's an interesting thing that we're seeing play out here. And it gives us some insight into, like, where policy comes from. As you said, it's this very long article. It's very hard to get to. It's behind the National Post paywall. It's incredibly long. And I don't know how many people read it, but I know that another article about this article, Conrad Black, who did a op-ed referring to this Adam Zivo investigation, that went viral and was trending. And Conrad Black's piece, I mean, the Post has published, like, a bunch of ancillary articles around this Zevo article that I think were probably read more widely than the article itself. Conrad Black's, I want to read from just for a second. Here's a couple things he says in it. His headline is, Free Hard Drugs for Addicts, a Catastrophic Liberal Failure. It is completely unacceptable to persevere like insensate zombies in enactment of a policy that could have been devised by drug cartels. Here's the part that got my attention, (laughs) in which he contemplates the war on drugs. And Conrad Black says, Western society went to war and was defeated. It was obvious that our governments were not really deploying a maximum effort. The war on drugs was far from a total war. The United States has a colossal air force, but never lifted a finger. So he wanted more blood and gore. (laughs) What does that mean? It's like they didn't use everything they had in this war. I guess they could have used nuclear weapons. Like, it's the kind of opinion that you're like, all right, granddad, you've had too much sherry. Like, what, what does that even mean? They didn't use the air force on the war on drugs, but... That's the version of this investigation that went viral. And Conrad Black repeatedly cites Adam Zivo's long piece, and he calls it 
comprehensive and diligent research conducted for several months. Authentic research by those on the front lines meticulously laid out in Zivo's investigation. Manisha, you know, you're watching it go from the, the long piece, which is presented as evidence. This is research. This is like a massive investigation. And then there's the think pieces by Conrad Black. And then it gets cited in parliament by Pierre Polyev and MPs that now it's been proven. We have the research from the National Post. And I think there's a very good chance that Pierre Polyev will be prime minister. And I have very little doubt that he will act on this plan to cut safe supply and it all comes back in this wave of the story to this National Post article. So let's talk about this article. Yeah, let's talk about it. I mean, there's so much to sort of break down here. I think my first kind of initial takeaway is it's really sort of missing the forest for the trees. He is hyper-focusing on safe supply projects, of which there are a couple dozen across the country. Um, I think the Canadian government has invested like 80 million, which is not that much. And a lot of these projects are quite small. So I think to sort of say that this has been a catastrophic failure, it's fueling this new wave in the crisis, it's almost like giving it too much credit because I don't think these programs are even at the scale yet where they could be doing that. Well, you wouldn't know that from the story that Zivo tells. And let's like present his story here. Here's how he presented it on Twitter. He tweeted, My new 10,000-word investigative report shows that Canada's safer supply programs have been a disaster. I want you to enjoy that number. 10,000 words. It is pretty much the only hard figure that he presents. The rest, as you say, it's anecdotes and a lot of hyperbole. And by the way, even that one figure is inaccurate. The piece is actually over 11,000 goddamn words long. <laughs> Here's the story he tells. The story he tells is that in response to the opioid epidemic where the drug supply is tainted and people who use fentanyl are like playing Russian roulette and over 30,000 of them have died because it's contaminated, the government has ramped up safe supply where you give people free hard drugs so they don't take tainted drugs off the street. And they don't give them fentanyl, they give them hydromorphone. And the story that Zivo tells is that this has been a disaster. What it's done is you've got government giving people free hard drugs that they don't use because they're addicted to fentanyl. And, and hydromorphone, though it's a very powerful narcotic, doesn't get them high. It just helps them with, with withdrawal. So they're not taking the hydromorphone. Instead, they're selling it to get money to buy fentanyl. And what happens then is the streets are flooded, and that's the word he uses, a geyser, flooded with hydromorphone, driving down the price of hydromorphone to like a buck a pill. It's like less than a tall boy, Zivo writes. And that in turn is like creating a whole new wave of addicts because we read that teenagers experiment with magic mushrooms and then upgrade to hydromorphone and then end up being fentanyl addicts anyhow. Other people are crushing the hydromorphone and injecting it and getting terrible infections. And he describes this, forget the fentanyl crisis, of toxic supply, this is the new opioid crisis, and it is repeatedly described as an epidemic on the scale of the OxyContin crisis. Hundreds of thousands of people died from that drug crisis, that opioid crisis. So this is the new one. It's hydromorphone, and it's a nightmare story because the government is the one supplying these drugs. So that's the thesis of this. And as you state, like, okay, I'm open to 
reading journalism about this. You know what I mean? Like, if the government is distributing tons of opioids, that's probably going to have a lot of effects. And I think it's worth asking questions about where those drugs are going. I could totally believe that fentanyl addicts are selling some of those pills. And it's totally worthwhile to try to find out what's going on. Listen, people absolutely are probably selling some of this safe supply. And certainly people who are fentanyl users they're not going to completely stop using fentanyl just because they're getting safe supply. And this is true. I mean, I've talked to people who are in safe supply projects in Vancouver, and they are continuing to use fentanyl because it's true that we have such a potent street drug supply now that these sort of legal alternatives are not always keeping withdrawal at bay. That's why you actually have some of these programs that are now giving fentanyl patches to people, like as an alternative to the street supply. So I think, you know, that is true. I don't think he's shown in any way that hydrocodone or, you know, he even talked about diverting methadone is driving a, a huge wave of overdose deaths. I think just sort of backing up a little to how we got into this situation in the first place is probably worthwhile. I mean, there's a lot of people that argue that had we just given people a safe supply of heroin way sooner than we than we sort of have, that might have actually really prevented a lot of deaths. Instead, we've had this situation of prohibition. You know, we went after opium. Then we went after OxyContin. Then people went to heroin. Then we went after heroin. And now, because our supply chain in North America is tied to Mexican cartels, you know, they are now manufacturing and smuggling fentanyl en masse because it's cheaper and it's easier to do and it's easier to get away with. And that's the situation we're in now. And now we have these sort of piecemeal safe supply projects with drugs that, yeah, they often aren't potent enough. So maybe the conversation actually needs to be, do we need to be giving people more of a safe supply that is in line with what they're actually using on the streets? I think that's all really relevant context, and it, it takes us to the place where Zivo leaves us, which is, you know, the, describing this nightmare scenario where the government is this drug pusher. But in order to get there, you know, there's two major data points that I feel like I'm just struggling to figure out what the basis are for. One is scale. If you're going to say that we have an, a new opioid crisis, which suggests also that the fentanyl crisis is behind us, right? We have this new opioid crisis. It's government hydromorphone. Well, can you quantify that? How much of this hydromorphone is out there? There is no indication in this piece. There's a lot of hyperbole, like I say, words like flood, geyser, epidemic, but the scale of it, we know that there are 28 safe supply projects, 28 projects. That doesn't sound like a lot of projects. I, I dug into like the one closest to me in Parkdale here in Toronto, and their annual report said they had 58 clients. And some of what they're saying is consistent with points that I think are worth getting into in the Zevo piece. Like, yeah, their clients are saying, this is helpful for me, this hydromorphone in dealing with withdrawal, but it doesn't get me high. If I had safe fentanyl, then I wouldn't have to take potentially toxic fentanyl from the streets. So, like, you could take the same problems with this program and actually suggest the program needs to go further, you know? But, okay, we have this one unanswered question in the piece of just, like, how much hydromorphone is out there? No idea. No idea from this piece. And then, if we're going to say that this hydromorphone epidemic or the results of hydromorphone are the new opioid crisis comparable to OxyContin, then I have questions about 
okay, are people dying from it? And there's no indication in this piece about whether people are dying from hydromorphone use or how, or how many. So I find on Twitter responses pointing to the BC Coroner's Service, which found that there's no indication that prescribed safe supply is contributing to illicit drug deaths, which doesn't mean it's not happening, but I, it makes me wonder, like, what is the apples and oranges of this? Like, I get that this is going to push conservative buttons to say that the streets are flooded with government, basically heroin, and that's an epidemic, and it's Trudeau's fault. But the whole point of this started with people dropping dead from toxic drugs. It's not great that there are non-toxic drugs that the government has put into supply, but if people are not dying from them, that's kind of relevant if you're going to say that this is like as bad as the OxyContin epidemic. Yeah, I think the the line about it, comparing it to the OxyContin crisis was just wild to me because that was just a large scale sort of campaign in which the FDA was essentially complicit and many, many doctors. And again, we're, we're talking about these sort of small pilot projects. I mean, it's also a bit like there are probably people who are diverting Dilaudid and, and some of these pills into the supply. But I guess, Adam, it's almost he's acting like it's fueling these brand new addictions and these kids are getting hooked on it and they're dying. And it's like, the reality is most of the people getting these diverted drugs are probably opioid users. They're, they're probably addicted to opioids in a lot of cases. And it's sad that we're even in this situation, but it's like in that case, if they're getting diverted drugs, at least they're getting diverted regulated drugs as opposed to illicit street fentanyl, which is still the main driver of, of all of these deaths, which he really seems to skip or gloss over in the story. You mentioned earlier the issues with the sourcing. Here's what he says, like, because throughout the piece, it relies very heavily on addictions doctors report this. Addictions doctors report that. And that got picked up by Polyev. We now know from the National Post that addictions doctors are reporting that the cost of hydromorphone has dropped by 95%. You know, like statistics based on doctors reporting. I think that people could be forgiven if they, if they would assume that that means that there is research that doctors have provided that are demonstrating this. In fact, what that is based on is anecdotal information passed on to Zivo by anonymous doctors. Some of the people I have spoken to for this story are given color-based pseudonyms, i.e. Dr. Blue and Mrs. Crimson, due to concerns about the retaliation they might experience if connected to either this story or my future reporting on Canada's failing drug policies. As addictions, physicians are particularly vulnerable. Their pseudonyms have been made gender neutral. So he's got Dr. Green, Dr. Red, Dr. Violet, and Dr. Indigo. When we give people anonymity, I think that the idea that you might lose your job is one reason why you might give professionals. They're saying something, they're whistleblowing, so you got to allow them to be anonymous. There is no indication in this piece when he talks about the bullying and retribution that doctors receive when they go against Trudeau. He has one example of a doctor, Julian Summers, who criticized the Safe Supply program and then was criticized by Safe Supply advocates who wrote an open letter. And then there's a reference that they tried to get him deplatformed from a conference. And it doesn't say whether or not they were successful in that or not. Would you give doctors anonymity for that reason, like this this threat of bullying and harassment? I don't think I would have given anonymity to the extent that he did in this piece, where almost all of them, you know, there's maybe a couple of exceptions, 
were not named. And also, like, it was just sort of hearsay is what it was a lot of the times. And I didn't see Adam really digging that much to verify some of these things that they were saying, even through just sort of more anecdotal evidence that he compiled himself, you know, like he's talking to doctors who are saying, oh, yeah, there's these patients with these bad infections from injecting this hydromorphone. Okay, if that's true, you could probably find at least one person who that's happened to as a form of your own corroboration and reporting. But he just seemed to print all of these anonymous doctors' claims, and that was like his big investigation. Yeah, as you say, the only drug user he spoke to in the piece, as far as I can tell, is a drug user who now runs a rehab program. So there's no voice of people who are actually involved in the Safe Supply program. And yeah, I think that there's another reason why these doctors might not want to have their names associated, and that's because they're not actually providing medical information. They are giving secondhand information. Here, I'll just read this. According to some of the experts I spoke to, this has caused the street price of hydromorphone to drop by an estimated 70 to 95% in cities with safer supply programs. Well, the doctors are not the ones buying the drugs on the street. So it's like the patient told the doctor that they're getting it for 70 to 95% less. The doctor tells Adam Zivo the secondhand information under anonymity. Drug users have been telling addictions physicians that like a geyser, diverted hydromorphone flows from these cities to other markets where opioids are rarer and sell for higher prices. Hydromorphone is allegedly being resold across Canada and even in other countries, lining the pockets of drug dealers and gangs. So here you're actually like building a story about organized crime and about what drug dealers and gangs are getting. And, and that information, again, is coming to the National Post from doctors who are hearing it from drug users and providing it under the condition of anonymity. That's the basis for this national epidemic that Zivo describes. Yeah, and he's making so many leaps based on this sort of conjecture. The whole thing about it's lining the pockets of organized crime, I mean— Come on. Like, I just find this very hard to believe. There's also nothing that suggests that, you know, these lowered prices are a result of safe supply. Like, he didn't prove that. I don't even know if he attempted to prove that. He's just sort of linking these two things because it fits his agenda. Some of the missing information strikes me as information that could be knowable or at least estimated reasonably. Like, how many people are enrolled in safe supply programs. These safe supply programs, they, they produce annual reports. Like, you could add it up. Here's one doctor who actually went on the record, Dr. Koivu. From her understanding, youth typically experiment with hydromorphone after trying ecstasy and magic mushrooms. Dr. Koivu said that several patients voluntarily left their homes to move into tents located in a parking lot near a pharmacy that dispenses safer supply drugs. They wanted to be close to the action, to buy hydromorphone early in the morning when it was cheapest on the black market for consumption and profitable resale. She is now convinced that safer supply exacerbates homelessness. Oh, okay. Like... <laughs> I, yeah, I don't even know where to start with that anecdote. It kind of sounds like propaganda -y to me. And it's like, where do you even start? Like, could he talk to any of those people? Are there ways he could have fact-checked that story? Well, he only had 11,000 words of room. So <laughs> to, to get more insight into diversion, I spoke with Giuseppe Gansi, a recovery advocate and uh, the chair of Clean, Sober, and Proud. Through his work, he's met hundreds of people who are either struggling with addiction or in recovery. And here's the quote. 100% of all the people I've met who are on Safer Supply sell 
they're safe for supply. Nobody that I know in the history of me meeting people, well, they all sell and divert it. So again, I read the annual report from the Parkdale Safe Supply Program, and they actually spoke to their clients who, who are also very critical of the program, but say, I use the hydromorphone to deal with withdrawal. It means that I don't have to go every single day and gamble with fentanyl, but it doesn't actually give me what I need. I would prefer to get fentanyl. Like, this is knowable information. You could actually just talk to people. This is exactly what I'm saying. Like, he could have interviewed people in these programs. He wants to present this as a big gotcha. But I think, I don't think it is this big gotcha. I actually think you could just argue that it shows we need more widespread safe supply. Um, and maybe more potent safe supply to beat people where they're actually at. It is being presented that way, and it's led to other news organizations picking this up. Global News like sent a reporter onto the streets of the downtown east side of Vancouver, and it's this, it feels like, like a Sunday Night Live sketch. The guy's like, I'm going to see if I can buy some of this hydromorphone, and he puts on shades yeah. to look like he's... he's wearing a he, baseball and, cap. <laughs> and, he, and he, like, hits the street, and he emerges, he's like, look... We hit the streets of Vancouver Friday to find out what was really happening. We overheard drug dealers shouting, Dillies, the slang word for Dilaudid or Hydromorphone. And it's like this gotcha that prescription meds are being resold on a secondary market on the street. That has always been true. And in fact, that's the point of introducing Safer Supply is to make it easier to get non-toxic drugs. But we are seeing a consolidated messaging and I think eventually a policy plank coming out of this. And we're seeing in Alberta, Danielle Smith is talking about forced rehab, right? Which is like imprisoning addicts and forcing them into rehab. And we're, we're also seeing, and I've talked about this before, Pierre Polyev trying to kind of like take this like tough on drugs, conservative messaging and rehab is the only solution to this problem, but put a bit of a compassionate gloss on it. And that is evidenced in the conservative messaging as well, where they keep saying things like, it's time to bring our people home. Like Trudeau is, is killing them. We're going to bring our people home. It's time to bring our addicts home. And home equals like, we're not going to give you government drugs. We're putting you on rehab. And... On this, we don't need anecdotal research. You know more about this than I do, but my understanding, Manisha, is that if the only option for people who are risking their lives and taking potentially toxic drugs every day is either you go into rehab or fuck you, you can die, we don't care what happens to you, we're not going to be bringing those people home unless they're like in a body bag. Like that is a policy for continuing and exacerbating the opioid epidemic and, and the tens of thousands of deaths. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's kind of similar to how we imprison a lot of people who are on drugs and people say, well, that's the only way that they're going to get clean is by sort of going through this very intense withdrawal. And a lot of times people get out of jail and then they do die of drug overdoses because they were forced into that sort of situation. Their tolerance went right down. They hit the street supply again. And, you know, it's it's dangerous. Not to mention it's just inhumane to talk about sort of rounding up people. And I think Danielle Smith said, you know, that it doesn't make sense to ask drug users about policy. It would be like asking drunk drivers to weigh in on driving policy. I guess the wider issue with articles like these, it really sort of bolsters this disdain and condescension that we have 
towards drug users um, to sort of know what's best for them. We don't want to give them any type of agency. But I think that's kind of the wider, scarier policy implication that can come from stories like this. Yeah, I think what I have the most visceral reaction to is the hypocrisy of the feigned empathy, like let's bring our people home. I feel like there is actually a a difference of opinion at the root of this. And we don't have to mess around with these kind of like fabricated narratives or at least like wide-reaching, you know, pretending that that we somehow now have smoking gun research. I think that to a conservative mindset, the idea that people who have morally failed and decided to become hopelessly addicted, that the government would help them get high and accept that they're just going to live that way. And, you know, maybe conservatives could like, okay, we'll fund a rehab program, which I think even makes them, some conservatives throw up in their mouths that you would pay for somebody else's moral failing. But the idea of safe supply is we don't even necessarily require you to try to get better. We are going to help you get high. Under this program, we accept that you might never get clean. We're going to give you drugs for as long as it takes because that's preferable to you dying. And from a conservative point of view, it's like, are you fucking kidding me? The government is going to give you hard drugs so you can get high and then continue your life where you're probably, like, draining 10 other government systems? Like, that is really where we could at least have an honest debate about two different policy directives. Yeah, and you notice it with Adam's story because he keeps using the term euphoria, that these programs are providing people with euphoria as opposed to, say, methadone, where they're not going to get high. So there is a moral sort of angle to this. There's a philosophical thing where it's like, how dare you, you know, maybe enjoy these drugs that we are supplying to you? And I think that's probably where a lot of these doctors, quote unquote, stand. And maybe that's why they don't want to be named or whatever, because it's just more of this philosophical argument and where do you fall on it? And maybe a lot of them just don't agree with with that at all. It's completely misleading because it's like providing these safe supply options is actually better for taxpayers if you want to go down that argument because, you know, people can generally be healthier, potentially work more, just have more autonomy over their lives. There's a lot of reasons why I think that's just sort of a a misleading line of thinking. But yeah, I I do think you're absolutely right. That's what it sort of boils down to is that these people are failures and why should we be funding them getting high? Well, just say no to magic mushrooms, kids. Gateway drug. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Look, I, I, I may not always take care of myself uh, the way I should. I sometimes don't get enough sleep or, you know, I stop exercising entirely, uh, fail to leave my desk for, you know, days. Manisha, I don't know what substances you ingest, but my approach to health and nutrition is not one of removing things to get healthy. It's in addition to the things that I probably shouldn't be ingesting. I'll also mix some AG1 powder with water and drink multivitamins and probiotics and prebiotics each morning. Get what I need, the minerals, the vitamins, that good stuff. You know what I mean? I'm at that age where I probably need this. This is a really simple way to just get it done. You don't have to keep track of a bunch of different vitamins. Make sure you're taking them at the right time. It's just one scoop every morning 
with water, which is also very good for you to do first thing in the morning. If you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Manisha, you've been here before. You know that we duly note stuff. What do you got? I wanted to duly note. So the Wall Street Journal is losing honorifics. So that means in their, I don't know if people know that word because I I didn't even, but it means in their copy, they will no longer be referring to people as Mr. or Ms. You know, they're doing away with that. And I just wanted to duly note that because it's like, wow, newspapers still do that? Like who... (laughs) (laughs) Who do we have that still does it? I think the Times does and the Globe does, right? The fancy ones. The ones that want you to know that they're for mom and dad. Like, they're the serious newspapers where, you know, even as they're, like, writing nasty stuff about me, they say, Mr. Brown. And it feels kind of backhanded. In their little write-up, they said, oh, it's, you know, we've done it out of politeness. But I do think it's more like this, there's, like, a stuffiness to it, I find. The last vestiges of, like, the things that we did to be like, we, we are the media. And, like, they're, like, very authoritative. Like, I, I think probably, like... Hear ye, like, hear ye. Yeah. <laughs> Just clean house of that shit is probably a, probably a good policy, duly noted. I want to duly note a little, a little blast from the past here. Today, this is uh, Thursday, May 18th, as people are hearing this, over 8,000 youth from across New Brunswick... Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, and the state of Maine will be converging at a stadium event in St. John, New Brunswick, where they will be motivated to be the change. Tell me when any of this is starting to sound familiar to you, Manisha. Uh, The speakers and performers will focus on topics like mental and physical health, volunteering, bullying, self-worth, and how each of us can better the world. They can be the change. They can better the world. Okay. All right. Starting to ring bells. I don't know. If you go to the website, the website of webelieve.ca, that's what it's called, you will see merchandise for sale, Rafiki bracelets from a company called me to we which listeners may remember. That was the uh, for-profit wing of We Charity, where if you buy me to we products, money is given to to the charitable side. But of course, I thought We Charity closed. Well, okay, the Rafiki bracelets are for sale at uh, webelieve.ca, where you could also buy a volunteerism trip, where you could do service learning. Let's not call it volunteerism; it's service learning to Costa Rica. There are sponsors like Air Canada and Tim Hortons for We Believe St. John. And yes, the photos on the website show you Craig Kilberger on stage at We Believe. This may lead you to the conclusion that maybe We Charity didn't close. Well, you would be wrong because We Believe is its own separate charity. Never mind Craig Kilberger on the website. Never mind the Me to We bracelets or everything else about this event. We Charity is not involved. And I wanted to duly note that. Duly noted. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. 
It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. The passport is getting a makeover. Canadian passports are getting a makeover. Did you hear that the Canadian passport is getting a little makeover? The federal government calls its new passport design a celebration of national identity. They erased Vimy Ridge to put in an image of a squirrel eating a nut. I'm so mad, I'm so mad, I'm so mad. They, they changed the passport, Manisha. People are very mad. People are very mad. Arshi Mann, my colleague, Arshi Mann, tweets utterly humiliating. A joke of a country. <laughs> Andrew Coyne, I'm guessing they wanted to take the coat of arms off altogether, thought better of it, and then compromised by shoving it into a corner. What an absolute cringe fest. <laughs> Dr. Leslin Lewis, Trudeau is trying to erase Canadian identity. Removing religious and royal symbols, purging our national identity from passports. They took out Vimy Ridge and Terry Fox with a man raking leaves, with a squirrel, with a nut. It shows disrespect for our history and those who sacrificed to build it. Jen Gerson, friend of the podcast. Yes, Canada's new passport really is that bad. Ugly, juvenile, so banal that I'm actually personally offended. How mad are you, Manisha? I mean, I think those statements are mostly true. Um, I agree. <laughs> and actually, I tweeted myself about it, saying that it reminded me of our gross jean jacket Olympic outfits from a couple years ago with, like, the graffiti on the jean jacket. I don't know if you remember that. It was it was a hideous jacket. And this passport cover reminded me of that. It was just sort of very juvenile and embarrassing. In a way, though, is that not super Canadian? You know, I'm usually game to take personal offense at the most banal bits of public policy or anything government does and act like it's a really big deal. But I can't even imagine being upset about this. I can't even fathom having an emotional response. Like, I was not invested in the passport as any kind of symbol of my identity 
or extension of my patriotism. And I, I don't believe everybody. I don't believe them. I don't believe they're as mad as they say they are. I don't believe you, Manisha. It's just not serious looking anymore, you know? Like, it, <laughs> like before, it's like you're at the airport, you're kind of, you're holding it. It's like, it could even be an American passport. It could cosplay as an American passport. Now it can't. It just, it's got like the half-assed outline of a leaf. I mean... I agree with Jen. It looks very silly. It looks like a little coloring book. Why do? You, but you want You liked that. You liked the serious passport. Like, like at least this. This like Canada. We have lots of things to say. But your passport. It had you. You actually like a monarchist. You like the coat of arms, right? So you secretly like that shit. You wanted it to be like. If it smelled like an old British guy, you'd be happy. You don't like this new clip art passport. I just don't like the design. I don't like the clip art part of it. I think the inside, you know, being replaced with nature or whatnot, that bothers me less for some reason. <laughs> they took out Terry Fox. There's a squirrel with a nut. This is my favorite absolutely hysterical emotional response people are having. I mean, it is terrible. I just don't care. They So, yeah, it's like this weird clip art inside that has these very banal two-dimensional images of just like people enjoying Canada or stick figures enjoying Canada. And one is a boy at a lake. And all these people are convinced that the boy is supposed to be Trudeau as a boy at Harrington Lake and that he has subtly and subconsciously inserted, like taken out the veterans and taken out Terry Fox and replaced it with himself as the symbol of Canada. Like, I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe he signed off on this. I really, I'm quite happy to blame him for things, but this is, this is absurd. I mean, I think it's just fun to get mad over dumb shit like this, you know? Isn't that the point of this whole show? <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm, I'm defeating my own premise here. 11 years ago, Harper introduced a new passport, and there was uh, a controversy. New passport lacks diversity was the story back then. That was the problem under Harper. Under under, Everybody is a little snowflake. It doesn't matter. Back then, everyone was a snowflake because they wanted to actually see Canada's diversity reflected in the passport. And instead, we got all of these like classic images of Canada. Now the classic images are out, and people are up in arms and, and they're crying snowflake tears over that. I don't know. Maybe maybe the show works better if I... Fuck it. Yes. I want my old passport back. It matters a tremendous amount to me. It's really, really important. I'm going to rush to get my new one in before they change it wholesale. <laughs> maybe you got this way when you left Canada. People tend to get into this kind of shit after they leave. Like, they, they're very... We're very jaundiced about it when we live here, but then people leave and they get really pro-Canada. Or they become like those annoying like defectors where they're like, they don't want anybody to know they're Canadian. I feel like oh, it goes yeah. one way or the other. Either you put the little flag in your Twitter bio or you're just like, yeah, man. You're one of those secret Canadians, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you can now renew online. So uh, you've got uh, the Trudeau government to thank for that one. <laughs> Thanks, Trudeau. <laughs> That's shortcuts. <laughs> Thank you, Manisha, for joining me. Thanks for having me on. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. I can be emailed to jesse at canadaland.com. I read the emails you send. Manisha, where can people find you and your work? At Manisha Krishnan, and my work is on vice.com. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. 
Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. Listen, if you value this podcast, please support us. Some weeks, it's really important to tear the shit out of an article as we did today, and we rely on listeners like you paying for us to do that. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free. You'll get early releases, bonus content, exclusive newsletter that we put out, discounts on our merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. We're doing a lot of them. They are good. More than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for supporting Canada Land. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.